Welcome to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, your own personal health reporter. February happens to be American Heart Month, so today's Catching Health Podcast is all about our hearts. My guest is Dr. Brandi Wingard, a cardiologist with Southern Maine Medical Center Prime Care Cardiology in Bitterford, Maine. Welcome, Dr. Wingard. Thank you. I'd like to start by clarifying what is the difference between cardiac arrest and a heart attack? Cardiac arrest is when a patient or person is felt to be unconscious. Usually when you see this happening, you check to see if they're breathing. If they're not breathing, then you start CPR right away. You also want to make sure you have someone call 911 for backup as soon as possible. This is different than somebody who's having a heart attack. Usually the person is still conscious, but they're complaining of chest pain, discomfort, or other symptoms concerning for that. Again, you would want to uh, call 911 right away. Um, the emergency services would pick you up and take you to the local hospital where a cardiologist would be standing by to be able to work on you to help you during that time when you are having a heart attack. So why is it important to know the difference? Because right away, if someone is unconscious, it is very important to start CPR. CPR is where you will actually do chest compressions on the patient until backup arrives. And so you can be having a heart attack and go into cardiac arrest, but if you are in cardiac arrest, it doesn't necessarily mean you're having a heart attack. Is that right? That's correct. There are multiple things that can cause a cardiac arrest. A heart attack is one of them. Uh, you are correct by saying that, but when you're having a heart attack that deals just directly with blockages in your arteries that surround your heart, that give your heart blood supply, and when those are stopped, people will have symptoms concerning for a heart attack, and you need to be treated for it right away. So CPR, uh, it's hands-only CPR still, correct? Only chest compressions? And yes. you just keep doing them, and, and truly you do them to the beat of staying alive? Yes, it's very important that you do them right away and you do them very fast. Staying alive helps a person to kind of time it. You want to do about 100 chest compressions within one minute. So understanding how fast that rhythm is in that song will help you keep on board and getting that done fast. So how do you know when you should be doing CPR? You should do CPR on somebody when you find them unconscious and not breathing. And the best way to tell if someone's not breathing, it may sound like a stupid question, but I just want to make sure we not, we understand that. Yep. Usually what we tell people is to either put your ear to their mouth to see if you can hear them breathing and also look and see if their chest is rising and falling. And so if somebody's having a heart attack, you don't necessarily do CPR. It's only if they've stopped breathing. That's correct. If you, if a patient is not breathing and you cannot find a pulse on them, you should start CPR right away. People can have heart attacks, have chest pain, but their heart rate is still going and they're still breathing and they're still conscious. Is, should we give them an aspirin or take an aspirin? Yes, uh, aspirin uh, 325 is usually recommended. That doesn't hurt. So if a patient does not have an allergy to that, then I recommend giving them aspirin. Do you recommend that people of a certain age take an aspirin every day? Uh, that's quite controversial. Some studies suggest aspirin, 81 milligrams, one tablet daily, especially if you have risk factors like high blood pressure, cholesterol, and other things we're going to talk about. Um, some studies suggest that it's not helpful. Okay. Um, I also want to ask you about automated external defibrillators, AEDs. 
they're available in a lot of places and they're relatively easy to use. So if somebody's in cardiac arrest and there is one of these available, you should use it? They're in public places everywhere. Um, I would go ahead and find it, you hook it up to the patient and it will actually walk you through it. You turn it on and it will tell you what you need to do. It will assess the patient's rhythm and if there's a rhythm on there that needs to be shocked, it will tell you how to do that and when to do that. So very step-by-step because step, I think a lot of people might be intimidated by the idea. Yeah, it is very intimidating to think about, but the AED was programmed so that any person could use it. And again, that's if somebody has stopped breathing if their yes. heart is no longer beating, that's when you would use it. Yes. Okay, so let's get back to heart attack. What are the most common heart attack signs? The most common heart attack signs are either chest pain or discomfort. People will describe it differently. Some people will say that it feels like an elephant or someone sitting on their chest. They describe it as a pressure. Some people will describe it as a tightness. It does not necessarily just have to be on the left side of your body where your heart is, it can be across your chest area. I do have some patients that, though that never have chest pain and in women that can be roughly 50% of women who present with heart attacks never have chest pain, tightness or pressure. Hmm. Some people will describe they have jaw discomfort, some people will just feel like they're nauseous, vomiting and felt like they had the flu. Interesting. So if you suspect it's a heart attack, even if it turns out to be the classic indigestion, it's really critical that you get to the hospital. Is that right? That's right. Because if it truly is a heart attack, it's very important to be treated right away. The sooner you treat your heart attack, the better the outcomes for you as a patient. So swallow your pride or whatever is making you want to stay at home and wait it out and get there. Correct. Some people will just say, oh, no, this heart attack, it's not happening to me. It can't be me. Other times they feel like they're bothering people and they just don't want to bother, you know, medical staff. But I always tell them not to feel like that. That's our job. That's what we do. We see a lot of people and we never know until we actually do the stress test or the or complete the workup. So I always tell people, if you're concerned, don't stay at home thinking about it, worrying about it. Just come in and get an evaluation and we can figure out what's going on. So what happens when you go to the emergency department? What do they do? Yep. When you arrive at the emergency room, if you tell them your symptoms, they will start with an EKG. The EKG sometimes will determine if you're actually having a heart attack or not. It's not always positive. Um, the next thing that they'll do is check your blood pressure. Um, they will also check your heart rate, hook you up to monitor, watch your heart rhythm, and then they will check blood work. They check a blood work called a troponin. When somebody's having a heart attack, the troponin is positive it can take up to four to six hours before it actually becomes positive after the onset of chest discomfort. So they may require you to stay in the hospital overnight while they're checking this. A lot of times if the troponin is negative and you have a lot of cardiac risk factors, then we have the patient undergo a stress test before we send them home. Okay. Um, so what are some things that could be going on instead of a heart attack if you have these symptoms we talked about? Sometimes people will just have bad reflux. Sometimes they can have spasms of the esophagus. Other times they can have um, inflammation around the heart or the lungs itself after a recent cold, and that can cause irritation and chest discomfort. So indigestion, indigestion can be so intense that it can feel like a heart attack. 
That's correct. A lot of times people will come and we always start with the heart first because we want to make sure they're not having a heart attack. And after the cardiac workup, if, if it's negative, then they go on and they'll see a stomach specialist and get prescribed the right medications for it. But it is very difficult to tell the difference between the two unless you complete a workup. So how common is it that a person will have absolutely no previous warning signs and will have a massive heart attack. Do, do people usually have some kind of warning signs? I've seen both. I've seen patients who've had, you know, symptoms of chest discomfort. They start to notice it when they're exerting themselves, or they may feel a little bit more short of breath than they did before. And it's a gradual process. I have other people who felt fine doing well, and all of a sudden they went out for, you know, their morning walk or their shoveling snow, and they start to have chest discomfort, and it, it happens that fast. Hmm. And so what happens when you have a heart attack? A heart attack is caused by blocked arteries somewhere, right? And the blood is just not getting into areas of the heart like it should? That's correct. So you have coronary arteries. You have a right system and a left system that wrap around your heart. The blood gets to your different parts of the heart. When one of those vessels are significantly blocked or completely occluded, you will start having symptoms because the heart's not getting the blood supply it needs. And so muscle is damaged or it can't even be repaired sometimes or? That's correct. And they've showed with studies that the sooner you get to a cardiologist and restore that blood flow to that part of the heart, the less damage there is long term. And you're right. Once the heart stops receiving the blood it receives, the cells start to die, causing muscle damage. Um, the longer you wait, the more damage can occur. And so we hear sometimes about these young people who are in great shape, who suddenly I don't know whether they have heart attacks or they go into cardiac arrest for other reasons, but is there some kind of a commonality? There are young people um, that we see who are out playing basketball, running, doing some type of sports who suddenly go into cardiac arrest. A lot of times those are related more to arrhythmias or some, some type of um, disease to their electrical system causing them to go into a cardiac arrest. That is different than people who have risk factors that have blockages in their arteries and have heart attacks. Can a younger person have blockages? They can. It's rare, but people who have certain cardiac risk factors, I've seen them as young as their 20s. So the risk factors are things we're going to talk about in a moment. Yes. Um, um, before we talk about those, I wanted to get a little personal. When I was um, going through menopause, I developed the heart palpitations and I had to wear a Holter monitor for 24 hours and my heart skipped thousands of beats. And of course I freaked out about it, but the cardiologist told me it was nothing to worry about. So I guess number one, is it common? Is it, can it be hormonally connected? And what kind of arrhythmias do you have to worry about? So you're correct. People do experience uh, palpitations and they, because they have irregular or multiple, these multiple extra beats throughout the day. Um, they do come in cycles. What it sounds like it was you've had probably premature ventricular contractions or premature atrial contractions. And that's just where your heart has this um, extra beat and beats out of turn so you can feel them. And you're right, it does correlate with certain things. I see patients who may have them, especially women, you know, going through either menopause or 
during a pregnancy because the hormones are different and they're cycling different and that can lead to these extra palpitations that you feel once once you get through that process a lot of times they go away we also see them in patients who just underwent surgery or had a new stress to the body i can see in patients who are dehydrated certain medications so you're right they are usually a benign finding that we see in patients but they can be very um, troublesome to the patient because you can feel them and it's very concerning when patients do feel that the correct workup for that is to, for a patient to undergo a holter like yourself you wear it for 24 hours because what we're looking for is making sure you're not having a bad rhythm um, that needs to be fixed um, and as long as your heart is structurally normal then these are benign findings and just can be more um, troublesome because you feel them. Right. It was freaky. Um, and they did yes. go away. I think it took about a year. But when is a, an arrhythmia not good? Is there a name for an arrhythmia that is not good? It's called ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation. And those are the rhythms that usually occur when you see athletes out uh, running, doing a sport thing, and they have a sudden cardiac arrest. That's when the ventricle starts beating very fast and you can't get blood to the rest of your body and, and people go into cardiac arrest when that occurs. And it's something that you can't predict most of the time, I guess? Yeah, most of the time you can't. Um, sometimes if it there's congenital disease that, are, that people will run in families and what they do is, you know, if you know family members that have had this, we encourage patients to go to a cardiologist, get an EKG done, get an echo done. Um, you know, let's talk about your family history so that we can go ahead and, and treat you appropriately for them. Okay. Let's talk about prevention now. The American Heart Association has a program that's called My Life Check, Life's Simple Seven. It gives us seven steps that can lead to big lifestyle changes. Uh, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about the steps. The first one, it says to manage your blood pressure. What is a normal blood pressure? Normal blood pressure is 120 over 80 or less. What should you try to do first to reduce your blood pressure if it's high? So lifestyle changes would include having a low salt diet, picking foods that have low sodium in them. Don't salt your foods. That's the first step that by doing that, it's in itself, you can lower your blood pressure a couple points. The second thing I always encourage patients to do is exercise. Knowing exercising on a regular basis can also lower your blood pressure. Another thing is weight loss. Getting to your ideal BMI or your body mass index of 25 or less also will decrease your blood pressure. Unfortunately, there are some people genetically, no matter how well they exercise, they're at their ideal body weight and they don't use salt, still have high blood pressure due to genetics, and those people require medications. But initially, I always try to encourage people to try, try changing their lifestyle first and then um, see if they need medications. Okay. Number two, control cholesterol. I always get confused about cholesterol. We've got HDL, LDL, triglycerides. Are we supposed to be paying attention to all of them or some in particular? Actually, you should pay attention to all of them. I think as a cardiologist, we tend to focus in on the LDL, which is your bad cholesterol. That's the stuff that builds up in your coronary arteries and other vessels in your body causing plaque that can lead to heart attacks. So as a cardiologist, we really make sure people have a low LDL, which is your bad cholesterol. But looking at it all around, it's very important to have a good HDL. HDL is a good cholesterol that helps to get rid of the bad ones. So having people have a high HDL really helps them long-term as well. 
Then there's the triglycerides. Triglycerides kind of reflects your lifestyle. People with diabetes or eat high carbohydrates, high sugar foods, their triglycerides tend to be higher. People who drink a lot of alcohol, they can be higher, lack of exercise. So again, you know, it's really important for the whole well-being of the patient to make sure all of these levels reach target. So when it comes to foods that wreak havoc on our cholesterol, it's sugar that's the worst instead of fat like we used to think? I think both plays a factor and, you know, lots of a diet with high fat that can, you know, play a part in your LDL and your bad cholesterol, but sugar in general, it plays on your triglycerides. And if you don't burn the sugar, it turns to fat. So that's an issue. So it definitely everything in moderation, but trying to stick to a low sugar, low fat diet really does pay off in the long run. And what's the connection between cholesterol and inflammation? Right, so they found that with the cholesterol, so if you have high cholesterol, that means there's a lot of the LDL, those bad cholesterol molecules running around in your in your bloodstream. And having a high level of that can activate a cascade of the inflammation process. And they think between those two, having high cholesterol and acting activating your inflammatory uh, response can cause people to have their plaque rupture in their vessels calling, causing heart attacks. So it's very important um, to keep your cholesterol low to help decrease your risk of this inflammatory type response. They have found that with statins, and that's why we as cardiologists try to use them a lot, is that with statins, not only do they help lower your LDL, which is your bad cholesterol, but they are feeling that it is helping stabilizing your plaques in the walls of your vessels to help decrease that inflammatory response. So the side effects of statins have gotten a lot of attention lately. What do you think is critical for people to know or pay attention to if they're on a statin or if it's been recommended for them? In general, statins are very good drugs. Um, there are some people, less than 1% will have issues with their liver, and that's why we check your liver on a regular basis. If we do see that the blood work of your liver functions are abnormal, we stop it and the liver uh, actually improves. Um, other people complain of muscle discomfort, and again, it's a very small percentage of people, but if you have muscle discomfort on a statin, we stop the statin and the muscle discomfort goes away. A lot of times we'll try different statins, so if we try one medication like Lipitor and you felt like you had muscle discomfort, we'll stop that, give your body rest and try a different one like Crestor. And just because they're in the same family doesn't mean you have the same response to them. Okay. All right, number three on our list is to reduce your blood sugar. I don't even know what my blood sugar levels are. Is it important for us to all know? It is important because that predicts a, lo a lot for you in the future. Having high blood sugars can lead to diabetes, which can lead to a lot of medical problems in the future. So your primary care doctor on a yearly basis, when you go for your complete physical, actually checks your blood sugar. It's part of the panel when they check your kidney function and your electrolytes, there will be a fasting blood sugar on there. If there is some concern or you have risk factors of diabetes, they will sometimes check your A1C, which is actually a representation of your blood sugar over the past three months. So there's a couple ways that your primary care doctors are checking it on a regular basis. So obviously I haven't been paying attention. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> All right, number four, get more active. At a minimum, what should we be doing? 150 minutes a week. So you're looking at 30 minute sessions five times a week, which is really important. Um, 
people who have active lifestyles, it helps with weight loss. It helps with feeling good about yourself. It, just in general, lower stress. It's a really good thing, and I encourage all my patients to do that. And when you say a minimum, do you mean um, exercise that makes you sweat, that makes your heart beat? That's correct. Uh, cardiovascular, getting out there, getting your heart rate up. Based on your age and gender, there's target heart rates to reach. And based on that, I would say get your heart rate up, make sure you're sweating and breathing, feeling short of breath, and getting active is very important. Okay. Number five, eat a well-balanced diet. I want you to name one thing we should add to our diets and one thing we should stay clear of. I would say vegetables. It's so hard for everybody to get in enough vegetables, but eating green leafy vegetables, any type of vegetables, fresh vegetables are so important. And one thing we need to not go near. Decreasing sugar. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I think when, pe when people start staying away from sugar, the sugary foods, you start to lack interest in them. It's sometimes like when you get in a habit of eating, you know, sugary things, you start to crave it more and more. But if you can break that cycle, you actually start to be able to say no to those extra sweets during the day. And sugar's in everything, I think. So you really have to be good at reading your labels. That's so, correct. So number six is lose weight. And number seven, stop smoking. We should stop smoking for every single reason in the universe. <laughs> oh. That's correct. I think smoking in general, and I'll tell patients, is it's the biggest thing that you can do is to stop smoking. Um, I do the cardiac catheterizations here at Southern Maine, and you can tell people who have smoked decades because it just ruins your coronary arteries. It ruins your arteries around your heart. It ruins the arteries in your leg. People start to have pain when they walk and discomfort. It's, smoking is not a good habit, and it's expensive, and I try to encourage patients to stop They'll say, well, I only smoke a couple cigarettes daily, which is better, but it's still smoking and it's still causing the same problems. You have to stop 100%. Wow. Well, these are seven simple steps, but they're not so simple for everyone. And unfortunately, sometimes it takes having a heart attack to jolt some people into action. Is there anything special that you do to try to motivate people, your patients, to make changes before they have a heart attack? Yeah, I will see patients before they have it who have a lot of risk factors, and I really am just very honest with them about if they continue down this lifestyle, what can happen to them. And so being honest with them and encouraging just, you know, changing one thing. I don't have them change everything. If they have, they smoke. That's the one thing we work on, just to stop the smoking. If they're inactive, then, you know, we work on that step. Whatever it is, we pick one and try to work on that versus trying to change everything in one step. Well, hopefully we've been able to motivate a few people today. Thank you, Dr. Wingard, for being with me and sharing information that could save someone's life. I've been talking with Dr. Brandy Wingard. She's a cardiologist with Southern Maine Medical Center Prime Care Cardiology in Biddeford, Maine. And I'm Diane Atwood. You've been listening to the Catching Health Podcast. For more information about recognizing and preventing heart disease, visit the American Heart Association website at heart.org. If you have any comments or questions about today's episode or have a suggestion for a future topic, send me an email, diane at dianeatwood.com. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Catching Health, and Catching Health is also on Facebook. For more health reporting that makes a difference, visit catchinghealth.com.